Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. We're looking forward to bringing you Season 5 of the podcast in a few weeks. In the meantime, today we're pleased to offer you Library Executive Director Kevin Butterfield's recent livestream conversation with Edward J. Larson. Larson is the author of many books, including the subject of this book talk, Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership. But before you proceed on, I'd like you to do me a favor. Not a favor in the Godfather sense, but one that will be worth your while. We need your help to make Season 5 of Conversations at the Washington Library the best one yet. To do that, I ask you, our listeners, to take a little survey that will help shape the future of the show. You'll find a link to this survey on the podcast homepage at www.mountvernon.org podcast. By filling it out, you'll not only help us help you, you'll also be entered to win a free book. Thanks so much in advance, and be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Again, the survey can be found at www.mountvernon.org podcast. And now, on with the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second lecture of the Michelle Smith Lecture Series. Uh, normally, I would say welcome to Mount Vernon. Uh, instead, I, I can't quite do that. I'm welcoming you into my dining room on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and will be joined uh, this evening in a conversation about his new book, uh, uh, Franklin and Washington. I almost called it Washington and Franklin, Ed. I guess that would be a mistake I'd be apt to make. Uh, Franklin and Washington, uh, the founding partnership um, by Ed Larson, who is the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law at Pepperdine University. Uh, before we start the conversation, let me thank everyone who's tuning in. Um, many of you are subscribers to the lecture series. Uh, many of you would have attended our first lecture with Jonathan Horn, Washington's End, uh, in person and at Mount Vernon, which feels like a, an eternity ago. Uh, but we now have uh, a new format uh, where we'll be doing these conversations uh, virtually and streaming into the comfort of your home uh, from the comfort of of my home and Ed's office, if I can guess uh, where he is in, in uh, Malibu. Um, I do want to thank the Robert H. and Clarice uh, Smith uh, Foundation for funding this lecture series. Uh, every year we bring three, sometimes four, of the finest books uh, to you uh, in a conversation with their authors. I'm thrilled to talk to Ed, Ed Larson uh, about this book. Uh, and I'm going to start, Ed, uh, with a, a fairly straightforward question. I know you first and foremost from a book that I've actually taught a couple of times about the Scopes Monkey Trial, and you know this book well, Summer for the Gods, a wonderful book that you wrote. Um, and I want to ask you, what brought you to the founding, uh, and why do you keep coming back to it? What what attracts the, uh, you to the founding period uh, with books like this? Well, I'm both a um, – oh, and first let me say thank you for having me at least virtually back in Mount Vernon. A few years ago, I was in the inaugural group of, of fellows at the, at the library and got to live um, there on, on the um, grounds. And that was a truly a treat. That led to my book, Return of George Washington. And I was looking very much forward to a return of Ed Larson to Mount Vernon uh, for this uh, talk. But I'm honored even to be remotely connected with this historic place that I love so much. And, um, and I've had so many times when I've been able to speak to your people in, in person at different lectures, I think three or four, and I was looking forward to it again. As for how I ended up back with the founders, when you think about it, I both, have both a PhD in history and I'm university professor of history. In fact, I, for years, was chair of the uh, history department at University of Georgia, where I taught the first half of American history regularly, which, of course, focused right there on the founding and the founding period. I also have a law degree, 
and uh, have always written on the Constitution. In fact, I published a, a collected notes of the Constitutional Convention that featured Madison's and Yates and the other notes that is widely used in classes. So I've always taught that period. I've taught constitutional history at Stanford Law School and different things. So I always had the two interests. And if you and um, assuming that when you assigned my book, Summer for the Gods, you read it yourself, you notice there's a lot of constitutional history in that. Yeah. And um, so what had actually happened, it's sort of an odd story, is I published the book on the on, on the Scopes trial, and then I published a couple other additional books, and an editor at a large publishing house, I think was at Free Press, contacted me and said, um, you know, would you like to write another book like the Scopes book? And I said... Okay, but but what do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, you're telling me something. What do you mean by another book like the Scopes book? What do you have in mind? You want one on the Leopold Loeb trial? I mean, what do you have in mind? And they said, no, no, no. That book covered uh, an epi- uh, uh, a fascinating episode in science and religion in American history. And I figured maybe maybe there's another episode like that that you could ca- talk in a in a very focused manner, and, and then. Read it. What I really did is I the Scopes trial became a vehicle for really talking about develop 20th century, uh, you know, 1920s social, political, cultural history. And so I said, well, I don't know. I'm sure there are other episodes. In fact, I once taught a grad seminar in um, episodes in science and religion in American history uh, after I'd done the Scopes trial. The Scopes trial was one of them, and, and I had about 12 others, and we, we looked at them one a week. I'll send you the syllabus and see if you like any. And one in that syllabus, one of them was the election of 1800, where Jefferson, a fellow Virginian and close friend, of course, of, for a while of George Washington, they sort of broke on the end, but they were very close initially, very close. And um, and uh, John Adams, who, of course, had been Washington's vice president, but person Washington could never tolerate. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you can ask your your director, Doug, about about the Adams Adams Washington relationship. <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody got along with John Adams, but his wife. Um, but anyway, that that aside, that election. And so they picked that. That was one of the elections because Jefferson was viewed as a candidate of science and Adams was viewed as a science, candidate of religion. Um, at least that's what they were portrayed. And so they picked that one. They said, why don't you write about the 1800 election? And I thought, well, that's interesting. Nobody's ever written about that. They'd written about that in concept, about the rise of partisanship. But every book about the 1800 election before mine was really about the rise of part- partisanship in the in the 1890s. Wonderful book. No, um, Cunningham's book's my favorite, but there are a lot of really good books. Susan Dunn, a lot of people have great books about that period. Um but nobody had really focused on the election as a blow-by-blow event uh, modeled on um, that wonderful book about the election of 1960 by, by White. And so I did that, and the result was a magnificent catastrophe. Uh, the, uh, well, the book was probably a catastrophe. I don't know if it was a magnificent one. But anyway, it was very popular. And so that got me back in the colonial period, writing about that. And of course, Washington features prominently in the first chapter of that of that book before he dies in um, uh, 1799 and in the lead up to the election. And so that got me back in the colonial period. And it was wonderful because I taught that and uh, the election, the book was well received. And so there came more and then came the wonderful opportunity to spend a year in, in uh, at Mount Vernon which led to the return of George Washington, which covers the period from his 
um, stepping down, uh, his historic stepping down as as leader of the revolution, and t- until the time he is elected as president, covering those pivotal six years when he turns out to be the key person in the movement toward a constitution, uh, mm-hmm. a, a a role that you know was sort of not fully appreciated how important Washington was for that, how critical, how central he was. And so that brought me back again. And then in a way, I then had two books in a trilogy of of the founding period. I had the election of 1800, which sort of completes the founding period and makes the uh, uh, American Republic what it is today with partisan elections. Um, I had the um, run-up to the Confederation period, the run-up to the Constitution, which is sort of the middle period of where we draft the Constitution. And then this, with Franklin and Washington, I can move um, back in time to all those incredible episodes um, from the French and Indian War, which shaped Washington more than anything, the French and Indian War shaped who Washington was, and then you had the period of the um, the gradual deterioration of the relationship between Britain and, and the colonies, where both Franklin and Washington were playing complementary, but distinctly different, because Washington was here and Franklin was there, and yet they were coming to exactly the same conclusion that America needed to be independent. So they, along with John Adams, who was really a hero of the early movement, maybe um, you might add Richard Henry Lee, if I want to include Virginia, uh, James Otis, a few others, Sam Adams, of course. um, They were early leaders of the movement for independence. They recognized before others, uh, before Dickinson, before a lot of other people, that America had just grown apart and needed to be its own separate country. And so Washington and Franklin could, could stand in for a larger group. So I ended up with the, and so many of the realizations that Washington and Franklin came to were then materialized or incorporated into the Constitution and the First Republic. So That's it's not hard to tell the whole story. And you, yeah, you've answered my question of why these two, as opposed to Washington and someone else, or Franklin and someone else. Uh, finding these two, you find them in the center of that entire arc from the 1760s through the through the founding of the Republic. Um, well, let's talk about that early period. Where does this this relationship between the two men begin? We know Franklin's born in Boston decades before Washington. Washington is, of course, a Virginian, born in 1732. Uh, where do they first meet up? What's their first encounter? It's during the French and Indian War. Uh, remember that uh, the French and Indian War really started. In fact, Washington played a pivotal role in that. But it really started at the what's called the Forks of the Ohio, or the Ohio country, where Washington had um, would have significant land holdings later, but and, but back then we're talking about the area around Pittsburgh, and mm-hmm. that area because of the quirks of the colonial uh, charters was claimed by both Pennsylvania, which claimed all the land going west from the uh, from the Delaware River going west. Uh, to and beyond Pittsburgh, to basically the southern, uh, the western boundary of Pennsylvania today. But Virginia, by an earlier charter, claimed its boundary 
uh, that went west by way of the Potomac River. And when that was drafted, nobody knew the Potomac River really went northwest as opposed to west. And the result is both Virginia and Pennsylvania claimed the area around Pittsburgh uh, before the American Revolution. Both had valid colonial claims to those regions, and both in the years in the 18 in the 1750s were projecting settlers back into that region that is now settled by Pittsburgh. So there were uh, settled around Pittsburgh. So there were a lot of Pennsylvanians and a lot of Virginians and. And uh, Washington was connected with the Virginia Company, um, uh, the Ohio Company of Virginia that was uh, formally trying to project settlers there. But Franklin was involved as well. Franklin, um, by this time, by the 18, uh, by the 1750s, Franklin had made his fortune. He was truly he'd come to Pennsylvania with nothing as a, a he'd fled an indentured servitude in Boston. Uh, fled it, went to Pennsylvania, and simply by dint of incredible hard work and amazing native ability, had become one of the richest men in Pennsylvania. He built a whole chain of publishing houses and and integrated backward into paper mills. Uh, he'd written, he was writing uh, the Poor Richard's Almanac, which was published was read all over the Americas, but even somewhat in England. He had newspapers. He was he'd grown incredibly successful and then decided to, he'd made his fortune, decided to go into public service, uh, it, it, sort of like a early Bill Gates or something, who then, you know, leads the, uh, Microsoft and becomes a philanthropist. And among that, he went into politics and he basically became the leader of the opposition party in the Pennsylvania colonial legislature, the majority party being the Quakers, and he was the leader of the opposition party. Well, when the French and Indian War comes, of course, the, what had happened is the French decided to try to link up their colonies in Louisiana and, and Quebec by taking over the Ohio Valley. So they moved their forces into and built forts at Pittsburgh, but were building a whole chain of forts right in where the Virginians and the Pennsylvanians were settling. And they allied with the Indians and uh, started attacking these settlements. That's how the French and Indian War began, a battle over the forks of the Ohio. Well, when the Native Americans went on the attack and started slaughtering Pennsylvanians, the Quaker legislators left the legislature because they couldn't fight. They were, they were pacifists mm -hmm. and turned the, basically the government over to Franklin. And he's put in charge of building a militia. So he becomes colonel leader, top person in the Virginia militia. And he's so clever. He figures exactly where to put the forts to push the Native Americans back. He does a brilliant job in stopping the assault of the Native Americans. But Washington, and this is key to the story, Washington, because his brother, the head of the, the, head of the Virginia militia, Lawrence, has died, Washington's taken over the Virginia militia at a very young age. And he's in charge of the Virginia militia. So they're both together trying to defend the frontier against the French and the Native Americans. So they start meeting then. Later, Braddock is going to um, uh, come in. The British are going to send a force over 
and he's going to march on Pittsburgh, on Fort Duquesne, with this line of redcoats to the frontier. And both Washington and Franklin say, don't do it. They're going to wipe you out. You can't walk through there. The Native Americans will kill you all. But he decides to do it anyway. He has a wonderful line to Franklin. He says, they may beat your local militia, but they'll never beat us proper redcoats. Well, needless to say, they're all slaughtered. And Washington carries back the general's body and buries him under the road where the Franklin's wagons are crossing over. But Franklin and Washington grew to really respect each other at that time. They were both colonial military leaders. They both cut their eye teeth learning the military. Washington learned a lot. Franklin became a big supporter of Washington. In fact, they learned a few lessons and they learned the same lessons. First, they learned from the French and Indian War, first, that you can't trust the British. They don't want, they don't have your interests. They don't have American interests at heart. They'll happily tax Americans without representation and they'll take the frontier. Right after the, the French and Indian War ended, the, the, the British got the frontier and then they closed it to Pennsylvania and Virginia settlers by the proclamation of 1763. Both Washington and Franklin deeply believed that America future was on the frontier. In, in the sense that they believed what made America different than British people. British people were all serfs. They were all owners or serfs. They were all upstairs or downstairs in the, in the, in the story of it was late, as may be told in Downton Abbey. And they didn't want America that way. They both believed in, in, in the opportunity of making your own economic freedom, individual liberty. And they thought that the key to that was the America's key to future was the frontier. Washington had made his fortune on the frontier by investment. Franklin, remember, had gone to the frontier in Pennsylvania and got his liberty. And so the idea that the, that the British would take away the frontier meant it would take away everything to make America Americans. That was a Keith shared idea. They had learned to not trust the British. They also had learned that the only way Americans could win was the colonies were unified. Uh, famously, both during the French and Indian War, both Washington and Franklin called for unity. Franklin famously in the, in the Albany Plan of Union that he pushed at this time, but he also made the first political cartoon ever drawn in America for his newspapers that shows a rattlesnake, American rattlesnake, cut into pieces, each with a different state's name. But if you look at that published in the Pennsylvania Gazette, actually the published edition of that, it is surrounded, it's surrounded by Washington's journal of going to the frontier and fighting the, the, the British. So Washington and Franklin are united on the very page of Washington's, uh, Franklin's famous cartoon and Washington's journal of his, their, okay. their. so they worked, and the, finally, finally, they learned America had to be unified. That's shown in the Constitution and the Revolution. They can't trust the British, and finally, they learned that maybe we can beat these British. When they looked at what had happened on the frontier, they realized, you know, Washington's Virginia soldiers actually fought better than the British at that battle uh, where the, the the great defeat outside Pittsburgh. And so they both decided, you know, maybe these British can be beaten on the, in the frontier by our frontier soldiers. So they shared, they came together then, and basically off and on again, they stayed together until they both appeared at the Second Continental Congress in 1775 as representatives of their two states and both as early advocates of American independence.
That, so let's not get there quite yet, though. I want to take you back into the 1760s. Uh, actually, both both men are, are, aren't playing an active role in the French and Indian War up to the close. They they sort of step away from, from it. Uh, Washington in the 1750s, late 1750s, and, and Franklin around the same time. But the Stamp Act, uh, in your telling, uh, and I think now might be a good time to show the cover of this book um, that we've been talking about. I think it's, uh, it shows both of them as, as older men, but Franklin's already kind of approaching this age. Um, cause he's, he's, uh, got a good, uh, what is it? 25 years on Washington. Uh, but he's, uh, um, these two men, uh, are brought back together in your telling by the stamp act, uh, by a shared, uh, sense of purpose. Uh, and I wonder if you could just talk to us about what was it about the stamp act? I, I think we, we take it for granted, uh, that it's this thing that, that united Americans. Um, and yet, uh, it's, the, the vehemence with which, uh, the way you describe it, Washington, uh, for instance, uses the phrase more, that it would be morally impossible to abide by the terms of this uh, the Stamp Act uh, for lawyers and judges to, to, to follow the terms of the act. Uh, something about the Stamp Act really got under the, the skin of both Franklin and Washington. What was it? Why was the Stamp Act uh, such a, a crucial moment for this uh, nascent revolutionary spirit? In the simplest terms, it simply was, as the banner read, taxation without representation. And they believed that absolutely fundamental, fundamental to the right of English people everywhere, they'd say English, we'd say British, but they'd say English people everywhere, is the right to set your own taxes um, through a legislative body, the House of Commons in, in England. And Franklin had been pushing ever since the French and Indian War, he just kept looking at the British because he had gone over and served as originally right in the late stages of the French and Indian War, as you point out. He, he, he was elected by Pennsylvania after it was sure the British were going to British Americans were going to win the war. He was sent over as the representative of the Assem Pennsylvania Assembly in uh, in England. And he does such a great job because he's already a wor world famous scientist by then. He's already done his electricity experiments by then. And he does such a good job that five or six other colonies make him his representative as well. So he was very busy representing like six different colonies. Mm -hmm. and, and he realizes that he's always arguing, just we're going to be more important than you eventually. By he calculated, he was a, you know, he calculated his math and he says by the 1840s, we're going to be more people in in the in the colonial America than there are in England. Uh, Philadelphia is already the second largest English speaking city in the world. We should have representatives in Congress, in, in Parliament. Then everything's going to be fine. Um, but they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And they kept and he saw them. He was fighting them there. He saw that they were legislating always for their own self-interest, the people who elected Parliament, which was mostly the merchants in London. Now, Washington felt the same way. He was constantly being um, mistreated by his agent. I mean, truly mistreated by his agent of his plantation in London. Why? Because his agent had representation in Parliament, and they were constantly passing laws which made growing tobacco in Virginia, he figured out, totally futile because they'll constantly make us send all of our our tobacco through London, and we're going to get we're going to get we're going to get the short end of the stick uh, because of their laws. In fact, that's why he shifted smartly from growing tobacco to growing wheat and became a wheat farmer because that was exempt. But he knew he saw by experience. It, we're never going to get treated right. And the Stamp Act was the extreme example of that because this was internal attacks imposed 
on all newspapers, legal documents, and, and filings, land filings, imposed by the British, enforced by British troops sent to the colonies and quartered in American homes. And so it was hitting landowners, investors like Washington. It was hitting printers like, um, like Franklin. Of course, it was hitting lawyers like, like the Lees or like the Adamses. And, you know, if you really want to make somebody mad, you don't want to make the rich people, the, 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 the writers, the publishers, and the lawyers mad, but that's what it did. And they realized that this was, they can take all of our money. What's to stop them take, and, and Washington had felt that so deeply as a planter that these, these parliament is constantly, they figure out how much money I make and they take it. One way or the other, they take it for their agents, their, the, our agents that were forced to have in, in, in London or directly by now, now directly by taxes or by import-export duties. And the result is we had lost our economic freedom and our political freedom. And that's what makes English people English people, they thought. And mm -hmm. the English are taking away our most fundamental rights. And both Washington and Franklin, but others like, like Adams, realized this too, and the Lees, and there's no turning back. There's no turning back. And the result is we're going to have to we're going to have to get home rule or independence. So there's a, a through line then from the 1760s into the 1770s, largely because British policy remains unchanged. They they scale back the taxes. The Stamp Act is, of course, repealed, uh, but they keep uh, a. Uh, the, the principle is maintained, right? A parliamentary sovereignty and the power to tax the colonies. Of course, there's a famous tax on tea, leads to the Boston Tea Party, leads to what the Americans would call the Intolerable Acts. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the sort of prelude to, to the actual revolution. When we get into the 1774, 1775 period, what are Franklin and Washington doing? What, 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 are, what are their roles in the earliest moments? Of course, they don't know that independence is around the corner, but they may be sensing it. Uh, where are Franklin and Washington around the time of 74, 75? Well, in 74, Franklin was still in London as colonial agent and, um, all, and was world famous already for his works in science and his writings, his, uh, his various writings, which were well known. And Washington was tending the plantation, very successfully, mind you, uh, in Mount Vernon. And, and then um, with these acts like the Stamp Act, they become radicalized. And Washington, the, the, a principal influence on him was his neighbor, George Mason. They fell out later, but at this time they were extremely close. And George Mason was a really a remarkable person. He was a bit of a recluse, I think that'd be a fair to say, but he, and, and a bit of a conspiracy theorist, it might be fair to say, but he took what was then called the Whig view that that these Hanover monarchs, these German monarchs, George the the second, the third, somewhat George the first, were conspiring to become absolute monarchs, and they were first taking away the rights of the colonists, and then they extend it to take away the rights of British people everywhere, and in, in institute a Hanoverian monarchy. Now that was. He believed that deeply, and there were certainly all other Whigs in England who felt it, and he, Mason read those, and he shared those with Washington, and they led to the Fairfax Resolutions and other activities by Washington. Washington became a leader, 
as we all know, he wasn't a great public speaker, but he was a monumentally impressive presence. And he was a member of the House of Burgesses. And there, by his sheer stature and his standings as a war hero, a true war hero from the French and Indian War, when he became radicalized and, and became committed and brought down resolutions that were largely drafted by Mason and submitted them, he became a leader in the revolutionary cause. And so he was elected, amazingly, really, as a, as a, as a legislator who, who was not a great orator. He was elected as one of Virginia's delegates to the first uh, Continental Congress. Um, what uh, Franklin was still over in um, England at this time, but because of his role opposing the Stamp Act, the British decided to make an example of him and bring him before the 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 uh, uh, a committee, um, and and absolute uh, parliamentary committee, and absolutely savage him. And he never forgot that day. He never mm-hmm. forgot that day. He didn't think he deserved it. He thought he was trying to make the empire work. And uh, he had he then this basically broke. And when he came back then, when he sailed back, when he realized that there was no more opportunity to bring the places together in England, he came back and he arrived just as the Second Continental Congress was meeting. Washington had been elected to the Second Continental Congress. Then in the run-up to that, the uh, battles of Lexington and Concord occur because the um, the British had imposed, as you mentioned, after the Boston Tea Party, the intolerable acts and in, uh, on Boston, closing Boston Harbor, and that led to the militia surrounding Boston. And then, uh, at, then the British tried to push back the rebel government by attacking Concord, and that failed uh, with the militia attacking the British on their way back in the Battle of Lexington and Concord, and suddenly war was war was on. By this time, Washington had already formed a local militia in Fairfax County and been elected its leader along with a couple other neighboring counties. And these were rebel militias as opposed to the official British Virginia militia in the state of Virginia. And Franklin comes sailing home just in time for the Second Continental Congress. And there they meet together in uh, June, uh, in, in May of 1775, when this famous, historic Second Continental Congress, which meets throughout the war, throughout the beginning of war, and later adopts the, uh, this is the, the, the body with representatives from all 13 states that at Franklin's urging chooses Washington as the commander in chief and chooses uh, Franklin is one of the people who write the Declaration of Independence and then choose him to be America's delegate uh, uh, ambassador to Europe, trying to negotiate much needed financial support and military aid from the French and the other governments in Europe. So there we've got we've got Washington and Franklin bound together, the, you know, bound directly together as the in the two most important positions the two key positions for the American revolutionary cause. So we know that Washington, uh, as you mentioned, because commander in chief and and is is, uh, also uh, by 1777, people are already using terms like father of his country. I mean, the role that he played as a unifying figure 
absolutely indispensable. But I wonder if you could talk to us. Uh, I think people, uh, the Mount Vernon audience in particular, uh, know the importance of Franklin and broad strokes. But um, next to Washington, uh, he may have been the most important person that helped the Americans uh, to victory uh, because of who he helps bring into the fold, which is the French. Uh, talk to us about Franklin as a diplomat. What do we know about him? I think he's been called the greatest diplomat America ever had. Um, what can you tell us about his diplomatic style and what Franklin uh, was able to do? Yeah, many historians of diplomatic history almost universally say Franklin was the most important diplomat, the most wow. successful diplomat in American history. But also, if you look, it doesn't matter who you look at, all the scholars, Gordon Woods, you name them, who write about the American Revolution agree that the two essential Americans were Washington and Franklin, that without them, without both of them, the American Revolution would have failed, that everybody else was um, possibly replaceable. You could have made it without an Adams, without a Jefferson, not that they weren't important. And Nathaniel Green was certainly important. Henry Knox was important. But that Washington and Franklin were the two essential ones. And with Franklin, it actually begins a little sooner because um, because Franklin and Washington were the two military heroes, as it were, at the Second Continental Congress. Franklin, of course, had led the Virginia militia, I mean, the Pennsylvania militia, and Washington, the, uh, the Virginia militia, and the, during the um, uh, French and Indian War. And they're appointed to all the war committees, in fact, all the committees at first. And uh, when Washington's promoted head of the military, Franklin basically runs all the war committees. And so he's meeting with Washington regularly. He goes up, you know, the poor guy is like in his 70s. And he goes up with the invasion of France. Oh, excuse me, the invasion of Quebec into Montreal. Um, mm -hmm. And um, also meets with Washington, meets with the peace delegation and with New York, um, meets with Washington at, 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 in in. In, in the siege of Boston, up in up in up in um, uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, together they they both agree that the, we can't have a, a bunch of state militias. We need to have an organized, single continental army operating under the command of one general. That is Washington. Franklin, even when Adams breaks and tries to to, to undercut Washington, Franklin is always committed to Washington as, as the leader, and not Horatio Gates, not anywhere else. And then when Franklin goes over to, to France, he is the one person with stature. Now, Washington becomes a hero in France, too. Um, but uh, Franklin is the one person with the stature that makes the revolution, because of his scientific history, because of his, his, his electricity, he's one of the greatest scientists in the world, and he has the dignity and the stature to, to get the French who logically, why would they, why would the monarchy want to support a revolution? Well, certainly they're in odds with England and friends of my, you know, the enemies of my en enemies are my friends. That's true. But also it's a, it's a, it's a precedent to, for revolution uh, and republicanism, which of course, comes back to haunt the poor French king, Louis XVI. Yeah. Um, yeah. He loses his head over the whole matter. Um, but despite all that, Franklin manages to negotiate not only an endless supply of money when the poor continental, uh, the, the, the poor American government couldn't raise money to save its life, uh, but also the troops. He, he, he organizes the, 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 the French troops to come over uh, and the French Navy 
that uh, which are essential in battling the with with Washington first around New York with the navy with the army, but then the navy, of course. Franklin arranges the, the Navy to come over and led to the, the Battle of Yorktown, Washington's other great victory, along with the, the um, crossing the Delaware in the Battle of Trenton and, 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 and Princeton. The other great victory, of course, was Yorktown. Well, in Yorktown, there were more French troops than there were American troops. And there were more, and the French Navy was key to bo- having beaten back the, the British Navy, was key to bottling up the the. Uh, Cornwallis on the Yorktown Peninsula. Well, those were all orchestrated by, by Franklin. Also, all those wonderful generals that that from France, uh, officers from France like Lafayette, um, and uh, the various generals from Poland that were absolutely Polanski and others that were key to to Washington building an effective army. Every single one of those was vetted first by Franklin. They all went through Franklin, and Franklin said, hey, this guy might be useful, and sent him on to Washington with a letter saying, you know, it's ultimately up to you, but this guy might be a good addition to your troops. And so all of them, all of these key soldiers uh, from Europe originally came through Franklin, and Franklin, source discouraged many of the ones he thought would be less useful. And so there was this working relationship that, um, and there was, they had to work together because you had to know where these troops had to go. And it wasn't just troops. Also, the French were supplying arms for the soldiers, clothes, shoes. They talk about the American army um, went barefoot. Well, it literally did go barefoot. Much of the, many of these American troops had no, had no shirts. They had no shoes. They were marching around in Morristown in the winter without any shoes. The shoes, to the extent they got them, came from shipments that Franklin arranged at Washington's pleadings from the French, so did guns, so did cloth, so did uh, clothing, and uh, the, the they had to work together. They dearly they they relied on each other. They trusted each other, and they knew they had exactly the same ultimate goals. And one thing nice about these two, you look at so many partnerships, and they become rivalries. Look at Adams and Jefferson; they break down as rivals, or Jefferson and Hamilton. And, you know, there's not one iota that both of these men, and that's one of the things that I grew to admire when I studied all their letters, all their correspondence, all their many meetings. There's never one note of of, of jealousy or rivalry. They both, both men were comfortable in who they were. They both mm-hmm. believed they didn't, you know, Adams, for all that Adams was, or, 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 or Richard Henry Lee, the same way. You know, they always felt threatened. And these two men, they never felt threatened. They were totally comfortable in their own skin, and therefore they could work together. And I truly, you know, that's a quality of leadership that is, is, is really special. That's remarkable. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the great things about this format, Ed, is uh, we have uh, an opportunity for people to ask questions um, to, to, to you uh, through, uh, through the uh, um, 
uh, they'll be coming in and, and and they'll pop right up. And and one of the ones that that popped up that I, I as you were talking about Lafayette, it noticed I noticed uh, uh, you were naming a lot of people who did share one thing in common. Uh, they were Freemasons, George Washington, Ben Franklin, Lafayette, uh, a lot of the other generals, and including the international ones, um, had that in common. Could you say something about the Masonic uh, background? Maybe any relevance to uh, to uh, the, the their their own approaches to the world, but. Also, this question I, I like specifically, did, did they ever actually attend any Masonic uh, event together? Do we know that? It's a wonderful question. And they were both more than Freemasons. They were the leaders of the Freemason movement in their respective states. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were not just uh, another member of the Masons. They were at the top. And they both viewed being Freemasons because neither were conventionally religious. They both had a tremendous belief in providence. Um, Washington thought providence had saved him and marked him for his 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 great role in the revolution. And you know, Actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Another question came in from Adam Carman, who asked if you could talk about the religious beliefs of both of the men. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you're talking about providence. Uh, go on. Uh, uh, tell us about this. Yeah, and this ties in with their Masonic beliefs, because... Mm. Um, being a Mason back then was more than just a club, a lot more than just a club. It may still be, but um, so uh, they were both, they both tremendously believed in providence. They weren't conventionally religious. They're both children in the enlightenment. Um, Washington famously um, stepped down as a, as a, on the vestry of his church at the beginning of the revolution and never again took communion because he didn't think he could take communion. Um, Franklin um, was grew up in a very religious family, very um, a Puritan family, and grew to have questions. And at times he might have been a deist, but certainly by the time these people were working together at the Constitutional Convention, they would both be considered um, providential theists. Um, with one term used for them, uh, Unitarians might be another term. They believed that Providence had set off. They both deeply believed that Providence was had set off America for greatness and um, uh, that there was uh, some sort of God behind it all. And the Mason Masonic movement fit into that because for both of them, Masonic movement, they were very active in it. It provided themselves, it provided both of them with a larger group to which they could relate and have deep, almost spiritual bounds. Hmm. And they that was important for, for Franklin when he was an uh, agent in England, and then a, very important because the Masonic movement was huge in France, in uh, Enlightenment-era France. It was important for him building ties and trust in, um, in France because this was a brotherhood. It was also important with Washington and his officers. So right. it gave them a larger purpose and a group of people who instinctively trusted them. And so it was a tie from the very first time they met. They were early, they were both very early members of the Masonic movements in their respective colonies, moved high up in those movements, were leaders in it. And it provided them the sort of the uh the alternative to uh, church membership. That's great, uh, and uh, I'm glad you're able to, to expand on that in both contexts. What what it, how it helped them see the world differently, and and the, the role that it played. Um, there's an, another question that that uh, is coming in from from Michael Shire that I, I want to 
bring up uh, that I think is a, a, a actually there's an obvious answer here that a lot of what you learned about the relationship between the two men came from the letters that they exchanged uh, because that's the one of the great things about history when people are apart from one another uh, we actually have more evidence to work with uh, and they were apart uh, for much of their um, uh, shared efforts on behalf of the revolution for instance uh, could you talk to us about the way that they exchanged letters uh, after uh, say, let's, let's just uh, go with the revolution, because I know that they're on, on both sides of the Atlantic with a shared purpose. Tell us about the letters they wrote. What did you learn? Sure. And, and this this was a real benefit for doing research, because bo- there are both the, and I shouldn't want to give a shout out to the, the correspondence projects for both mm-hmm. Washington, which is now, I believe, works largely out of Mount Vernon. It was originally based in Charlottesville, but I think it's mostly out of uh, Mount Vernon now. You have a strong connection with it. And then the one for Franklin. These correspondent projects are magnificent, the way they've collected the letters and annotate those letters. And you can, that was a tremendous asset in the sense that um, you can follow not only their letters back and forth, but also letters to others when they refer to Washington refer to Franklin or Franklin refers to Washington. But their correspondence begins early, begins obviously to some extent in the French and Indian War. Uh, it, it's sporadic after that because they're in two separate states. But during the, the when they become apart, um, after they get together the Second Continental Congress, when they split apart, when Washington first goes off to to lead the commander in chief. And then when Franklin goes to France, they begin corresponding back and together because Franklin is still head of the war committees. So he has to write to Franklin and then when he's in uh, to Washington and then when he's in Paris, he has to write. And then it continues thereafter because they have become friends and they do, you can see their terms of endearment and you can try to like their salutations. And then you compare it to the salutation to other people. And certainly, Frank Washington, there's no one that he has warmer salutations with than Lafayette. Lafayette's are the dearest. My dearest son, my dear. You know, it's almost it, it, the way they refer to each other. But Franklin's only, a, you know, a step below that with the way the way he refers to him as dearest friend and, and other mm-hmm. other other. Um, way they correspond so the way they introduce each other. Uh, Franklin's the same way. Um, your 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 devoted servant. Your, now some of these are conventions, but then you try to compare them with how they write to other people. And Franklin was not as close to certain other people. Washington was not as close to certain other people. He certainly wouldn't write to Horatio Gates like that. Right. Uh, and Franklin wouldn't write to the to the to the Lees like that or, or to John Adams. Um, there was a certain distance. And you can see their level of relationship and the types of things they write to each other. My favorite of them during the revolution is when Yorktown is successful, when Yorktown is successful, Washington sends a fast fr- frigate to France. He doesn't wait for Philadelphia to tell him, the, the, uh, the, the government at Philadelphia. He sends a fast frigate right to, to France with a note to Franklin telling Franklin what had happened, that they had won the Battle of Yorktown, and that put them on the, the to road to indi- final road to independence. So mm-hmm. there is this ongoing relationship that appears in the letters, and these continue right up to the end, right to their their uh, Franklin's last year of life, where they continue to, to write back and forth and, and use ter- terms of endearment for each other. 
So before we go to other questions, um, well, uh, actually, one just popped up. We'll get there in one second, but uh, let me pop back in. Uh, and then because we haven't talked about the convention, the Constitutional Convention, where Franklin and Washington, uh, obviously the two most uh, uh, remarkable men, the, the two most influential men in America, are both in the same room together again for a number of months. Uh, there's a great painting, uh, obviously decades later, or centuries later, uh, even uh, by Howard Chandler Christie from the 1930s, uh, that puts both uh, uh, Washington and Franklin right at the at the the center in different ways. And I wonder if you could talk to us about the, about this painting. Some people may have seen it in the Capitol. I also, also as an Oklahoman, uh, at least I taught at the University of Oklahoma for eight years. Uh, there's a slightly different version of this at the Gilcrease Museum in Tulsa. Uh, it's a remarkable uh, snapshot uh, from the, the 1930s, looking back at the Great Convention. Uh, but it could it tell us about this Christie painting and, and where you see Franklin and Washington in it, and, and what Christie's trying to, to get across. This picture, more than anything that I know, captures the American the vision of Americans, the view of Americans have of the Constitutional Convention. This is the picture of the signing, and it's not historically accurate. Um, for example, the drapes are open intentionally to show a bright new day, and of course, the drapes were closed, the shutters were closed, this was all in private. There would have been no um, open windows in the back. But Christie wanted to show a bright new day, and the light coming in from the backlighting makes all these members appear almost um, like with halos around them. They're back in the way because of this. And he intentionally groups people together. Nobody has any idea exactly how they were or, or, or organized. So he groups them together in groups. And interestingly, uh, the picture shows everyone who signed the Declaration, uh, signed the Constitution. Some of those people had already left because it was signed the next week. And they weren't there, but he paints them in. Also, Famously, three people, um, two from Virginia, George Mason and, and Rand Governor Randolph and Elderberry Jerry from Massachusetts, didn't sign. They were there, but they're airbrushed out of this picture. So <laughs> it, it, it's clearly a picture designed to show image. And, and look at the way it's put together very carefully. Washington stands um, on the side above everybody else, head and shoulders above everybody else, looking out as if looking to a distant shore. And right smack dab at the center, the only person looking directly at the viewer is Ben Franklin in blue, standing out in the middle with Hamilton leaning over to catch his ear and Madison over on the other side. And then if Frank um, Christie, when he painted the picture, has a key and he lists every person there, beginning with one, two, three, four. Now, number one is George Washington. See, there's a little picture of it, and then there, there are numbers on it. And number two is Franklin. Well, they're not, this obviously doesn't start from the right or the left or, or age or anything else. Yeah. They are clearly, who, and, and then Hamilton, Madison are three and four. Um, and that's of our view of their relative significance. And I think that's fairly true because when they went to the convention, if you look at the, the newspaper articles, they all mention that Washington and Franklin were going. They were the two larger in life Americans. They were the only true national heroes in America recognized from, from Maine to Georgia. And so they're always listed. They had been the two chief public advocates for a convention. Sure, the, the, uh, the Annapolis meeting 
Hamilton call and make issues the call and things like that. But Washington had basically been pushing for this since the end of the revolution with the circular letter of the states. And as governor of Pennsylvania, because when after the revolution is successful and uh, Franklin comes back, he's elected three terms. I mean, the guy is 80 years old. He's older than Joe Biden and he's elected three terms. And people, you know, didn't age as well back then. He's elected three terms as governor of Pennsylvania. So he's the sitting governor of Pennsylvania at the time of the call and the holding of the the Constitutional Convention in his capital city of Philadelphia. And so, and then you look at the ratification, all of the article, you can just read, and I go over them in my book, the letters everywhere, the advocates of the, 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 the Constitution, they all say, well, if Washington and Franklin gave us this, who can doubt it? And that's the Federalist main plea that these two people wanted it. And in fact, to show that when Washington goes up to the Constitutional Convention, and he's, of course, a huge star, he's he's the most awaited delegate other than those already there, because Franklin was already there. When he gets there that first day after he drops off his bags at Robert Morris's house, he immediately goes to Franklin's house, goes to the Franklin's home. The first thing he does and meet with Benjamin Franklin. And Franklin gives him a tour of his house. They sit down together. Um, Washington, he has, he has, Franklin, you know, was not a big drinker, but had learned to like wine when he was, and become very good at uh, connoisseur of wine during the French Revolution, when he was served in Paris. Of course, Washington loved wine. And um, was, and so they had wine together under, under the mulberry, under Franklin's famous mulberry tree out front. Um, a scene also captured in the at the in the Capitol building, and mm. together they 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 negotiate because they know they are they are the two key delegates. It's it's whether this is going to make it or not because there's a lot of opposition to a new constitution, and they both had similar goals. They both had been saying right along that we need a central government that has certain essential powers. Oh, many things can be left to the states. But the central government, and on this, Franklin and Washington saw eye to eye, that the yeah. central government had to have power over international and interstate commerce. They both deeply believed that. Uh, and and the, the Articles of Confederation didn't have this power, and it was leading to economic chaos. They thought that the central government had to have control over the frontier because they both as I said before, believed that the future lied on the frontier. And when that was left to the states, well, no state had the wherewithal or the force to, to, to defend the frontier. And the Native Americans were pushing back into to Georgia, pushing back into Western Pennsylvania, the Ohio country. They both thought the central government had to have that power. They both believed the federal government had to have power over power to raise revenue, because it didn't, raise revenue to get and spend tax money for the general welfare. And they thought it needed power over a central armed force that would defend the frontier and defend America and also over foreign policy. Well, that's what they set out to get. And that's what they got. So uh, this is uh, as we're uh, nearing the end. I'm glad we're at least getting close to 1790 uh, when, when they, the friendship ends. Um, but I, I do want to go back to questions. And Brandon's question uh, is a good one. I won't ask you to, to reflect on Washington's weaknesses. I, I, I uh, choose not to. Uh, but I will ask you to reflect on Franklin's weaknesses as a public servant. Uh, 
was there anything about Franklin that that he didn't do well or that that he didn't get right in his years of public service? Uh, it's an interesting question, a, a good one to ask a, a biographer who, uh, you know, frankly, this is a, a very positive biography, a positive appraisal of both men. Um, so, but what's the flip side? Was there was there a, a weakness? I think it's a fair portrayal because these were both extraordinary men. Mm. Um, Franklin, like Washington, they were both thin-skinned. Um, they both did not take criticism well. Neither of them did. They would share that. Um, neither of them were particularly good public speakers. Um, as a result, they both relied on others. They both took counsel. They both tried to share credit. But they, because they weren't orators, that gave a certain power uh, uh, to a, um, somebody like uh, Patrick Henry. And who could who could rally people better than either Franklin or Washington could because they they just really didn't have that uh, that mm-hmm. skill. And so that would be one um, weakness. Uh, Franklin, um, you know, it depends on what you call it. He had his he had his opinions. He would listen to others. He would take counsel and he would compromise. Both Washington and Franklin, another trait in common, is they were both they're both principled people. But they both believed in; they were co- willing to compromise on means to receive ends. And the result is Franklin ended up compromising on things that he didn't agree with in the Constitution. He thought he, he did not believe in the strength of the presidency. He thought there should be a much weaker presidency, like his constant. He wrote the Constitution for, for Pennsylvania and had a weak presidency. Uh, we it was called actually called the President of Pennsylvania. Franklin held that three times, and it worked when he led it. When other people because of his strength of, of, of character and power. But when other people liked it, it wasn't strong enough. Washington wanted a strong presidency, the presidency we see today. Washington basically got his way on that issue. Franklin lost on that issue, though Franklin did get impeachment and other powers added on. So they battled over that. They differed over that. Uh, Franklin probably didn't push uh, hard enough on slavery. Franklin was found, was president of the first abolitionist society in America. He, he strong, was deeply opposed to slavery. He Frank Pennsylvania became the first state to abolish uh, slavery after the revolution. Um, and but he chose not to push too hard because he wanted the Constitution to work. And he thought, well, we'll never get the South in if we if the Constitution does, has, you know, is going to abolish slavery. He, he, so he, he ended up compromising on that position. So you can look in these things as strengths or weaknesses. He then, once the Constitution is passed, he then pushes Congress to try to abolish slavery as fast as he can, and he petitions Congress, but he only lasts a year longer before he dies. So let's go to another question, and this is one um, uh, that I, I think is uh, uh, coming from teachers, uh, Mount Vernon, uh, as, uh, as you know, has an active uh, uh, in, uh, effort to uh, work with teachers, uh, summer institutes, uh, residential uh, institutes where they come and spend a week in Mount Vernon, not quite the full year that you got to spend, Ed, but, uh, but still a pretty nice time. And, and uh, this question is, uh, if you could impress on students of history one thing about this Franklin-Washington relationship, what would it be? What's the, what's the one takeaway you might want to share with teachers that they could then share with their students? Leadership. These people were both um, models of, of leadership and a leadership that works in a democracy. They, mm. both, they, they both deeply believed that the only way a democracy can work, a republic, they call it a republic, was a republic, could work, is the, both the people and the leaders have to have virtue. 
have to have virtue and they have to um, be willing to uh, 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 work together. They have to be willing to listen. They have to be willing to compromise. They're both big believers in in um, in compromise on means to affect principles. But those principles were political and economic liberty. The, there's individual liberty, both economic liberty, economic freedom, um, property rights. They both believed deeply in property rights. They both believed in liberty of conscience, liberty of a political liberty. Uh, and so the, they could work together as leaders. And that was the sense of their relationship. And they are models, I believe, for leadership studies. And leadership studies is, a, I think, an important thing to, to share with students, the importance of Republican virtue, civic virtue, that we all need to be citizens of our republic. We need to know how our laws work. We need to vote. We need to um, be um, corporate citizens who are willing to step forward and, well, well, as Franklin famously said, all hang together or we'll all hang separately. So um, there's one uh, in your epilogue. You you actually you you, you bring out a an, an icon and an object of, of real historical significance um, that uh, um, I, I I think we may even have a shot of it. That uh, comes from the Smithsonian. Uh, this is a walking stick uh, that Franklin uh, bequeathed to Washington. Uh, tell us about it. What's what's special about this this object? It it it, it looks remarkable. Uh, but uh, why did Franklin give Washington that instead of Something else. I just I'm I'm curious to hear hear more about the story. Well, the fact that he gave him anything is tremendously significant because Franklin, you know, Franklin had a family. He had children, unlike Washington. He had children. Um, he he who he doted on and grandchildren that he doted on, and he gave them a variety of things. And he didn't single out any other people for gifts, but he'd received this. And I just um, pulled out that section. Um, the will, Franklin's will, says, my, fried, uh, my fine crab tree walking stick with a gold head curiously wrought in the form of the liberty of the cap of liberty, I give to my friend and the friend of mankind, General Washington. If it were a scepter, he has merited it and would become it. Now, that says a lot. It says a lot because he, he didn't give anybody else anything. Um, he had a lot of longtime friends, both Washington. That was a trait of both Washington and and Franklin. They had they were loyal. They were loyal to their friends, and they had lifelong friendships. But yet he singles out Washington, who's been elected president by this time. And Franklin had been given this walking stick in France at the time of the Revolution. That uh, it was it was this. It's a beautiful piece. It's made from a crab tree, so it's sort of wrinkled. And by this time, you know, when Franklin was in France, he was in his 70s, and he had trouble walking with the gout and and his other illnesses. And um, so here was this beautiful walking stick that was given to him by a French aristocrat. And on the top was this gold head with the liberty cap. Now, the liberty cap was a symbol of the American Revolution back then. And so when he dies, rather than give this very valuable piece, to his children or his friends or, or to a museum or to anything else. He gives this 
to George Washington. Now, it's a little bit to me like the passage in um, in the Old Testament where where the prophets anoint Saul as king. And here, Franklin, who is the 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 prophet of of the of America, the sage of Philadelphia, gives this walking stick as a scepter to George Washington. Uh, and, and the one gift he singles out. And Washington was was really in, deeply, deeply touched by this gift because here it was Franklin passing away with this special gift from from that had been given to him by the French and with the Liberty Cap head, as opposed to a royal scepter, this was a people's scepter. And I think Franklin was trying to send a message to Washington that, remember, you're the sovereign of a people. You reign for liberty. You don't reign for your own power, like the English king or the French king. You don't reign. You reign for the people and you reign for liberty. That's what America stands about Franklin believed that deeply, and he knew Washington believed it as well. So he saw that as an appropriate scepter that he, as like an Old Testament saint, passed on to the first king of Israel. That's, that's a wonderful story, and I'm, I'm really glad you brought it in as, as the epilogue because it, it, it has a real message for the future, uh, as, as you suggest, about what the republic is all about. Um, it's our republic. Uh, this is a beautiful book, uh, Ed. I, 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 I could bring things to a close uh, with a question for myself, but actually it looks like we have a question from a former colleague of yours. Um, uh, the, um, uh, I, I think, um, is, that, is that right? Um, uh, it, with all of your research on George Washington and Ben Franklin, if the two men joined you for dinner, what would you ask them? Uh, that's a great question, and uh, don't, don't, go, don't go light on us. What would you really ask them? It would be a wonderful dinner. They had many dinners together, including during the Constitutional Convention. They ate regularly together. Um, and I would trust that Ben Franklin, when he met with that first dinner during the Constitutional Convention with Washington, he, he knew Washington liked porter. And he opened a cask of porter that he had, uh, which is a dark beer, uh, mm. a people's beer, which is important, a people's beer that had been sent to him from London. He had from London. He opened the cask and they shared it together and they both agreed it the best porter they ever had. And so I would hope that we would be having that sort of meal, a friendly Great. meal over a nice glass of beer. And um, both uh, Washington was a tremendous storyteller. I had said he wasn't a great speaker. He wasn't a great public speaker, but because he had those false teeth. But he was a great storyteller, like Reagan in a way, but his stories were not about Hollywood, but they were about the actual um, um, Revolutionary War. And people loved his stories. And so, you know, they'd be telling stories. And Franklin, of course, was a humorist. And Washington loved a joke. And Franklin was a great joke teller. So they, they, they would be having this wonderful deal, a meal where they would, and I would, I would just want to mostly be listening to what they had to yeah. say, because they always... They didn't. They didn't talk idly. They always had a purpose for when they talked because they were both such wise men. But I would ask them um, what their hopes were for America, what their dreams were for the world's first continental republic. They both viewed it as a model for the world. And what are their dreams and their hopes for all of humanity, and how they would hope that America would build on this this 
liberty that we cherish, how we would build on it, how we preserve it against the constant threat. They knew that the American form of government was fragile, how they would preserve it in the future, and how it could be extended throughout the world. Indeed, funnily, interestingly, as soon as they leave the convention, Franklin sends the Constitution over to some friends in Europe and says, you might want to all get together and do this in Europe, have one big republic, just like we're doing with our states. And yeah. Washington, of course, very much would write over to France that, that, that the American government could be a model for you. And that he was devastated by the French Revolution. So I would ask them how they could see that this American system that they forged could be preserved and um, propagated throughout the world because I think it's their greatest gift to humankind. Wonderful. And, and this, uh, again, I, I really enjoyed the book. It was a, a great opportunity to get closer to both men by seeing them in, in their relationship with one another. Uh, thanks so much to everyone who joined us here tonight. Uh, this has been a, a real thrill. I, I, normally, I can see your faces and I can hear your applause uh, at the end of the day to tell the author what a great job he did. We don't have that tonight, Ed. I think we're going to have to imagine that. Uh, but um, this, we uh, Great. So someone is giving us a, a verbal thumbs up. Uh, um, and Thank you, Jan. I really appreciate it. Because the feedback is, is one of the things I love because the people, the, the people who come to Mount Vernon know so much about history and they care so deeply. I love, I hope you'll have me in the fall or have me back sometime. Oh, absolutely well. It's such a wonderful thing. And it's the people who come there that make it special. Well, thank you for joining us from the West Coast. Uh, please come uh, next time. It's going to be in person, and we want you back in Mount Vernon. Uh, keep writing about the founding. Uh, keep Washington in there. Uh, and uh, we, we look forward to, to what else you can have to teach us. So thanks, Ed. This has been a wonderful evening. Uh, and thanks to all of you for joining us. Uh, we'll see you again. There is a third lecture in the Michelle Smith series. Uh, date still be determined. We'll get there. Uh, we'll be joined by T.H. By, uh, Breen uh, with his new book. Uh, but this is a, a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And thanks so much, Ed. Thank you, Kevin. Take care. Take care, too. Stay well. You, too. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.